Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. One of the central concerns of political philosophy is what is the nature and demands of justice. But a lot of the ways that we think about justice presuppose a stable and democratic nation-state. What happens when that isn't there? What happens when the society itself is transitioning or coming out of a period of war or conflict or repression or genocide? My guest today, Professor Colleen Murphy, argues that in those circumstances, we must rethink justice and the nature of justice and what is moral in those circumstances is different to our regular ideas of what is just conduct. Professor Colleen Murphy is a professor in the College of Law and the Departments of Philosophy and Political Science at the University of Illinois. She's also the director of the Women and Gender in Global Perspectives program and affiliate faculty at the Beckman Institute. She has an MA and PhD in philosophy from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and a BA from the University of Notre Dame. She's also an associate editor for the Journal of Moral Philosophy. She's the author of a number of works, including The Conceptual Foundations of Transitional Justice, which will be the subject of today's conversation, and which received the North American Society for Social Philosophy Book Award. She's also the author of A Moral Theory of Political Reconciliation, and co-editor of Engineering Ethics for a Globalised World, and Risk Analysis of Natural Hazards. So, this is going to be the first part of a two-part conversation, as is becoming quite common on the podcast. A lot of you have let me know that you like the longer-form conversations, but you like each episode to be about 45 minutes to 55 minutes, because that's kind of the unit of time for your commute, or doing chores, or working out, or whatever it is you're doing when you listen to this podcast. So, in the first part, we're going to cover the argument of Professor Murphy's work, Transitional Justice, and in the second, we're going to apply it to cases such as the Iraq War, such as South Africa, the transition from apartheid, and finally, we'll look at the case for reparations for discrimination against black Americans in the context of the US. So the applied will be next week. Uh, This week, we're just going through her argument in transitional justice. And as I readily admit at the beginning of the interview, I'm more than happy to say that this is not an area on which I'm personally super knowledgeable. I think it's an incredibly important area, but I try to approach at least the beginning of this interview with a little bit of humility. And for the first part I'm more just trying to get a clear, structured account of the argument and of the terrain. And in the second part, we jump in and try and apply that theory. So hopefully this is an interesting and valuable interview for anyone like me who recognises that this is an important topic and is looking to wrap their head around some of the basic ethical and normative issues that arise when we start thinking about morality in the context of incredibly challenging situations like post-conflict, post-genocide, transition from authoritarian to democratic rule. 
If you enjoy this podcast, please do support it by helping us to get the word out there. Political Philosophy Podcast is a little bit of a niche thing, so any help in finding listeners who are really into this field would be greatly appreciated. One really easy thing to do is, if you enjoy an episode, just share it on your own social media. That helps us get the word out there. Also, um, forward to people you think would be interested. So if you work in a philosophy department, which I know many of our listeners do, or you teach philosophy, I know we have a lot of MA, DPhil students and so on who listen, consider forwarding it to your students if particularly there's a topic that comes up that you think would be relevant for them. Um, please do that, that would be great. And finally, if you want to support us on a more monetary basis, you can sponsor us on Patreon. That's really easy. Uh, for regular listeners, we suggest a donation of $2 an episode, but, you know, that's a suggestion. Whatever feels right to you. It's very simple, very easy to set up. It's just patreon.com slash political philosophy podcast, patreon.com slash political philosophy podcast. This is a pure passion project. I'm doing it because I think this is interesting and important and I want to share it with people. But if listeners could just chip in to help cover the costs of um, hosting, of software, of stuff like that, that would be amazing. And a big, big thank you to anyone who does any of those things to help support the podcast. You've made it possible for this podcast to be sustainable and to go out to thousands, tens of thousands now, in fact, of people. So thank you so much. Please keep sharing, sponsoring anything you're doing to support the show. So with that as preamble, it is my absolute pleasure today to introduce Professor Colleen Murphy. joined today by Professor Colleen Murphy. Colleen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Toby. Great. So before we get started, um, do you just want to tell our audience a little bit about the sorts of topics that you work on and what ideas are most interesting to you? Sure. So I work generally on questions of post-conflict repair So how we deal with legacies of wrongdoing that are uh, systemic and widespread after periods of war, after periods of repression. Um, And I also work separately on questions of um, the ethics of risk. When we're conducting risk analyses with respect to various disasters or hazards that communities face, be it hurricanes or climate change or um, terrorism, what are the consequences that ought to be taken into account and how do we think about the acceptability of risks? Great. So we're going to talk today about your book, Transitional Justice, which Mm -hmm. I must admit has been, it's always great to learn new things, right? Um, A bit of a blind spot for me in terms of um, political philosophy. So 
You make the argument in the book that transitional justice is foundationally separate to other forms of justice. So this is a big question, but to start with, why don't we back up and just say a few words about the role of justice in political philosophy generally? Because many contemporary political philosophers, um, just to take the most obvious example, rules really take the idea that justice is the central normative concept for political bodies or this is the central value that we're looking at when we look at what's normative or ethical in a society. Um, Do you have any words to sort of frame how we think about justice generally in political theory before we get to how transitional justice might be distinct from that? So that's a great question. And first, I'll just note that you're not alone um, in not having much familiarity with transitional justice. So it's a relatively new body of scholarship. And and political philosophers have actually not been some of the main voices within that burgeoning literature and practice. Um, But then when it comes to thinking about justice as a value, so if you look at political philosophy, both historically and um, in terms of contemporary literature, justice is sort of the dominant value that you find being discussed. Very often or characteristically, philosophers don't tend to talk about justice as such but rather talk about particular types of justice. So Rawls, who you mentioned in his famous book, which is titled A Theory of Justice, doesn't actually offer us a theory of justice as such, but more specifically a theory of one type of justice, namely distributive justice. And you can think of other types of justice that are the subject of ongoing discussion, including retributive justice, global justice, procedural justice, racial and sexual justice, And there's no real consensus on what are the features that are shared by all these types of things such that that they count as kinds of justice. Um, One thought is that justice reflects or captures especially demanding constraints on action or requirements for institutions that govern and shape um, social life in the modern world. there's one theorist wants, Emanuela Cheva wants to say, well, there's um, different aspects of justice in general. One is about the outcomes or the distributions that result from um, processes of social cooperation. And another aspect concerns the, the characteristics of that cooperation itself. Um, so that's kind of a, 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 a one way of, of situating my conversation is within general discussions about different types of justice that matter for modern communities where justice is taken to be a central or salient or foundational value that institutions and practices of cooperation must realize and respect. I'm going to have to have someone on to do Wittgenstein sometimes because I yeah. always start with sort of this big conceptual question. Right. And then I always find myself using the phrase family resemblances. Yes. So um, yes. it might be just like when it comes to concepts of, to take another category, freedom. There's democratic freedom, economic freedom, um, negative freedom, um, freedom of self-development, and any, any number. And... They're sort of thematically linked, but there might not be a strict definition that ties them all. It seems like 
an interpretation of what you just said is you could say something similar with justice. Justice is a concept, but there's any number of conceptions of that concept that might be quite distinct practically and normatively. I think that's right. And I think um, it's it it's worth having philosophers spend more time on sort of fleshing out um, what exactly the family resemblance is or consists in or looks like um, when we're talking about justice as a category of um, evaluation um, or as a, 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 um, a normative ideal that structures our evaluation of actions and institutions and practices. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to get too hung up on that. I, I, maybe, yeah. maybe one point you could make of the, that seems to run similar with the different conceptions of justice is they tend to be more personal than poli- more political than personal. They tend to be rules governing societies rather than just like how you treat your wife or something like that. But even then, that's not universal. Yeah, and I think part of some feminist critiques of Rawls point to the dangers of trying to make that kind of distinction, that justice within the family, for example, or patterns of of behavior and interaction, such as patterns involving domestic violence and abuse, become removed from conversations about justice if we divide it in that strict way. So I think, um, you know, maybe there's a way of, of, of salvaging um, the personal versus political that could avoid that sort of problematic implication. Um, but again, that's something for philosophers to take up more carefully. And I've just focused on one piece of of justice rather than um, justice as a whole. So let's get to that specific piece. Um, mm-hmm. Your argument, if I understand it, is that transitional justice isn't is something fundamentally distinct. It's not just an application of other forms of justice to um, a sort of different arena or set of circumstances. The the differing set of circumstances make it a different thing. Um, Did I get that right? That's correct. Mm -hmm. So let's go through the circumstances. You argue that um, there's a specific set of conditions under which transitional justice becomes operative, and other sets of justice become inoperative. Mm -hmm. So let's just run through these one by one. Well, let's do the first two together. The first two are pervasive structural inequality and normalized collective and political wrongdoing. Can you cash that out maybe in more sort of um, everyday parlance? Sure, sure. So I'll just um, take a step back um, just for context for listeners of, of um, the, the, the sort of subject of inquiry. So what I'm interested in analyzing and, and um, the situations that gave rise to my book. So there are um, dozens of societies around the world um, globally that have tried in recent decades to transition from extended periods of conflict or repression to transition away from those periods, and in many cases transition to democracy or aspire to. So you can look at um, South America, countries like Argentina and Chile following periods of military juntas or dictatorships, South Africa, which I know we'll talk about more later, but in 1994 when it transitioned away from apartheid to democracy, um, more recently, looking at the, the the wars following the breakup of the former Yugoslavia, 
in the 1990s and um, Iraq following the end of the era of Saddam Hussein for um, listeners in the Americas, Colombia right now is an especially interesting case as it aims to end more than 50 years of conflict. So you have these um, extended periods of repression or conflict, and characteristically, during these periods, you have violations of human rights um, committed, and often on a large, very large scale. Um, so in the case of Colombia, according to the state's victims unit, there are more than 8 million who've registered as victims since 1995. That includes um, 10,000 tortured, 46,000 enforcibly disappeared, the forced displacement of more than 7 million, tens of thousands taken as hostages, you know, 17,500 raped or subjected to other forms of sexual violence, and 260,000 plus killed. So as an international community and, and these societies domestically have grappled with how to what to do about the past, about these legacies of wrongdoing during these periods of transition, trying to move away from conflict and and repression. And the underlying thought has been that the past must be reckoned with in some respect or else um, peace or an end to a repression won't be stable or won't be enduring. Um, But how to do that without risking Um, The resumption of conflict or the return of repression has been part of the challenge. So you find a range of processes that have been adopted to um, deal with legacies of wrongdoing, including criminal trials, so the familiar way of dealing with wrongdoing um, in liberal democracies with criminal action, as well as uh, truth commissions, which are official bodies that are established to document patterns of specified human rights abuses over committed over a specific period of time. Amnesty provisions, which remove um, prospects of criminal or civil liability, reparations programs, apologies, memorials, and then policies of lustration, whereby certain individuals or groups of individuals are barred from serving in um, certain public capacities. So the, the, the question that I take up in my book is, um, and the question to which my theory is an answer, is how should societies deal with these legacies or violence? What, what counts as dealing justly with wrongs of the past in this context of transitioning away from conflict or repression? Um, and there's a lot of disagreement over the answer to that question. What does it mean? Um, to deal with justly with the past, not only in terms of prescriptions for what should be implemented, whether it should be a truth commission or a reparation scheme or criminal trials, but also over the criteria to use when evaluating these responses. So, so, so to map forward the philosophical talk we did at the beginning onto that, yeah. if we define justice very broadly as Mm -hmm. the ultimate moral or normative rules by which we judge whether a society is just or unjust, good or Mm -hmm. bad. Mm -hmm. Um, The circumstances say, you know, in a contemporary Western liberal democracy, those rules will be different than the rules in the transitional states that you've just described, or so your argument goes. That's right. That's right. And the reason why um, why that's so, I think... 
um, stems from what we what we're circling back to, and that is um, the different circumstances, what I call um, circumstances of transitional justice that characterize um, these communities that are in transition. So my my starting point is David Hume and how he thinks about um, justice, where he very famously notes that circumstances, a set of circumstances of justice generate a particular problem for a society, which principles of justice or rules of justice or um, demands of justice, however you want to fill that out, provide guidance for resolving. So I think Hume is key for saying, for noting that principles of justice should be seen as context dependent, becoming salient in specific set of circumstances and in response to a particular problem that arises in those circumstances. So for the communities in transition to talk about in normal language, the first two circumstances, which you had asked about pervasive structural inequality and then normalized collective and political wrongdoing what they mean very simply is is the following. When you're talking about pervasive structural inequality, the subject is the rules and norms governing interaction among citizens and between citizens and officials in a community, in a society. And the kinds of institutions that that govern and shape interaction, that provide the rules for what citizens are permitted to do with respect to each other or officials with respect to citizens include laws, of course, legal rules, but also the rules and structure of economic institutions, of social institutions, of political institutions, et cetera. And when there's, they're unequal, um, they're unequal in the opportunities that are afforded to different groups of citizens to do and become things that matter, to become educated, to become active in political processes, um, and where uh, to shape the rules, the institutional rules and norms themselves, and where that inequality in rights that are recognized or respected or in opportunities that are available isn't a function of individual choice. It's not a response to or a function of an individual choosing to become a professor as opposed to having a preference to become an investment banker, where, of course, um, there'll be different consequences when it comes to the wealth that individual will require, acquire as a result. But rather, the inequality is a function of the rules of the game um, and how they shape who's permitted to do what. Um, And when you've got inequality in the context that I'm interested in, it's such that the state becomes illegitimate. Um, there exists a right to rebel on the part of citizens, and you only need to think about apartheid South Africa and the scheme of racial discrimination and segregation that existed there to see why that's the case. I want to so, I want to put a flag on that point because um, yeah. maybe we should finish the rest of the conditions first before sure, we get sure. to it. But sure. there is there is this pervasive. Um, it's one of I hate to say there's 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 a central set of questions that political mm-hmm. theory is trying to answer. But the right to rebel does really That's seem right. to be one of them. That's a central concern going, well, I mean, Locke and Hobbes seem pretty That's right. key there. Let's put That's a flag right. in that. Um, sure. Because the, the, there's two further bits that you add to that, mm-hmm. which is um, serious existential uncertainty mm-hmm. and fundamental uncertainty about authority. Mm-hmm. 
I might be conceptualizing this wrong, but that yep. would seem to come sort of after you decide to invoke the right to rebel. You then enter a state of that existential and moral uncertainty. Or are you thinking that all four taken together need to be there before your the, the rules of transitional justice start to apply? Good. No, that's a good question. So I'll just I'm just going to say one thing about the the wrongdoing that's salient, and then I'll answer talk about that question of of um, of uncertainty. So the wrongdoing that becomes um, of interest is not um, what I call ordinary criminality. It's um, wrongdoing, where by that I mean violations of human rights that have become a basic fact of life around which individuals need to orient their conduct. So it's not exceptional. It becomes, in a sense, the de facto rule. Um, so the, the prospect of being tortured if you're arrested becomes something that you need to take into account when you're deliberating about whether or not to speak out against the government, knowing that you might be arrested even if declared rules say that you're permitted to um, criticize and express disagreement. Um, and it's often wrongdoing that's political. So that implicates state actors. We're not dealing with wrongs that are committed by private citizens against one another, but about representatives of the state or individuals acting on behalf of or with the permission of the state in the case of paramilitary groups. Um, or groups contesting the state, if you think about the armed wing of the African National Congress contesting apartheid, and doing these wrongs, committing these human rights violations for ultimately political reasons, either to maintain a state, to overhaul a state, um, and the wrong takes very different forms, disappearing of citizens, rape, torture, um, limb amputation, um, appropriation of land, the, the, the list is quite um, extensive. So those two circumstances are characteristic of lots of current repressive regimes that aren't transitional. Right. So I think what does make a difference and makes the question of transitional justice become, in Hume's language, both necessary and possible to address are the other two that you just mentioned. So when you've got a context in which there suddenly becomes serious existential uncertainty, that is, uncertainty about what the future of a political community will be, whether, in fact, you'll have um, um, maintenance of a repressive regime or actually the possibility of it being overthrown, whether you'll have a continuation of war or whether there's a genuine opening for peace, which a lot of times peace accords are, are intended to signal, but where those openings don't necessarily mean that there will be normative success, that you'll actually get, even if there's a toppling of Saddam Hussein, an end to repression, or whether you'll actually get in Colombia right now, and end to war with the signing of a peace agreement. So these contexts which, in which suddenly what seemed impossible becomes possible, right, an ending to war or an ending to, of repression, but it's not a given that that's what will actually end up materializing. So enormous, in, when South Africa held its elections, no one quite knew whether or not those elections would stick or they would just be the precursor to a resumption of um, entrenched um, civil conflict. So 
I'm, I'm waiting to go back a step here just to sure. understand this myself. Yeah. But we've got those four conditions. That's right. Which is you've got structural inequality, yeah. normalised wrongdoing, particularly right. from a political source, but then right. also serious uncertainty about what is actually going to happen in the state and also serious uncertainty about who is or sh- even who should be in charge in a particular exactly. instance. Exactly, exactly. Um, Correct. So your argument is that when you have all four of those in place, mm-hmm. you're in a completely different realm normatively than you would be, say, um, in contemporary Britain or America or something like that. My question would be, is there a distinction if, say, only the first two are in place? So if you're Good. in a repressive regime Good. that, I mean, Saddam Hussein pre-First Gulf War or something That's like right. that. That's right. right. Good. It seems to me that that would be a separate set of normative constraints again, in that it might actually, you might almost get a complete inversion of contemporary morality in the thing that would do the most good from a consequentialist point of view or even protect the most rights from a deontological point of view might be collaboration with that regime because that would, you know, that might be just how you keep your family alive or something. No, I think that's exactly right. So I think I think that the, the questions of what counts as right action in the context of ongoing repression and the normalization of wrongdoing is enormously complicated and and not obviously straightforward for ways for reasons that you just indicated that the consequences of doing what we might normally think of as the right thing right speaking out against the government refusing to collaborate comes at significant risk and personal cost and also cost for family members so the um, navigating context of repression in a morally defensible way I think is um, is a separate subject of inquiry that I don't um, directly engage with in my book. Um, but, but, it I is, did, but it is a separate subject of inquiry. It is a separate subject. So I say, so I talk in the, in the, the first chapter of my book about how we can, we can, um, that I'm giving analytic categories of paradigmatic transitional contexts and then paradigmatic, what I call stable democratic contexts and the circumstances that arise in each of those. But then you can have hybrid cases where you've got some but not all of the conditions of justice that obtain in transitional contexts, some but not all of the conditions that obtain in stable democratic contexts. And then following Hume's methodology, the question becomes thinking about what is the salient question of justice in those hybrid circumstances. Right. Yeah. And so, but the paradigmatic, I'm going to butcher the word, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. The paradigmatic case for you would be where there is repression, there is structural inequality, but then there is also an opening for some sort of transition. Um, Yes. um, Do you make a distinction between... Because I can think of two different types of opening. One would be like the type you have in, say... um, I guess South Africa, where there's an opening to just basically dissolve the constitutional order and start a new one. The other would be, I don't know, Gandhi in India, the civil rights um, movement in America, where there's an opportunity to fundamentally transform how some citizens are treated by the law and the relation between citizens, but while still maintaining, in theory, the Mm -hmm. old constitutional order. Do you make Mm -hmm. a separation between those, or do you see them as sort of more on a continuum? 
Yeah, no, I see them more on a continuum. I think I think of the overarching objective um, in terms of transforming relationships fundamentally between citizens and officials and among citizens so that they're no longer pervasively unequal. And I'm silent, though it's a very fascinating question that I want to take up more extensively, as to um, how to think about constitutional change and transformation in this context. Um, so the, the initial answer is that what I'm functionally interested in is the pursuit of transformation of relationships um, and don't see that as precluded by the pursuit of transformation, um, maintaining um, a particular constitutional order when the constitutionally recognized rights, for example, of certain groups of citizens weren't in fact uh, respected in practice. So, so to put that in a practical case, in the case yeah. of, say, the US civil rights movement, the mm -hmm. goal is that black people in this country can go to the same schools, can not be afraid of lynching, can whatever. And that could be achieved by a constitutional change, but it could also be achieved by a sort of more general how we interpret the constitution. Exactly, change. the extent to and, which... But that what matters is what matters, which is how people are actually living their lives. Exactly. And the so I think it matters that the institutional rules and norms um, what declared rules say. So differential, so, um, you know, one, so it matters that equal rights be expressly acknowledged in a constitution, but often in contexts of pervasive inequality, what happens is a gap between what declared rules say and how they're actually enforced in practice. So, Theoretically, you know, D Jim Crow was supposed to be um, segregation and separateness that was equal. And of course, in fact, that was not at all the case. It was separate and fundamentally unequal. And lynching just ref reflects the fact that um, rights that were legally codified and theoretically available to um, all Americans, black and white, were de facto denied to um, African-Americans systematically, right? Due process rights and um, um, protections for earnings that had been acquired legitimately, et cetera. Great. I want to come back to um, the, the sort of U.S. case in a minute. Yeah. But just first, moving forward in the book, mm -hmm. you then look at some other general conceptions of mm -hmm. justice and mm -hmm. argue that they're not... The, 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 the sort of framework that we want to be interpreting transitional societies in. So you go through retributive, corrective, and distributive. Mm -hmm. um, let's just take those in order. So I've always been a bit sceptical of retributive justice for mm -hmm. reasons that you, um, a sort of ob objection you anticipate in the book, that when you really get down to it, how much of people's lives are they really in control of? You know, we don't choose our genes, our parents, our environment that whole argument, right. right? And that does seem to to me to take a lot of the force out from stuff like that, as well as out from stuff like basic dessert. But then when you get into transitional contexts, it does seem like you say that having some sort of, at the very least, recognition of past wrongdoing is a sort of condition for future peace. So how do you think about retributive justice generally? And how do you right. think about it in the context of transition? Right, right. So I'm careful in how I um, 
I'm silent on the question of whether or not retributive justice, for the purposes of my argument in the book, whether or not retributive justice is at the end of the day a defensible conception of justice, that the thought that justice requires that if you do wrong, you ought to suffer proportionally, right, as a matter of, of dessert. Um, the reason why I sort of set aside that question, whether or not we should um, think of this as a viable conception of justice at all and just engage with it on its own terms is because, in fact, in transitional contexts, um, the retributive instinct is very strong, not universally, but at least among um, many citizens um, in in transitional situations who've you know been victims of serious wrongdoing or whose family members suffered from serious wrongdoing, and so who find anything short of punishment, especially for for those who are responsible for horrific wrongdoing, um, unjust. So it's interesting if you look in in when Colombia had its its um, the referendum, the plebiscite on the. Um, peace accord that had been agreed upon um, by the FARC and the Colombian government, for many, the provisions of the special jurisdiction for peace, which allowed for non-punitive sentences for um, certain perpetrators who came forward and confessed to what they had done um, when their wrongs were not eligible for amnesty because they were either war crimes or crimes against humanity. For many who voted no, that was just unacceptable. That was, you, if you do wrong, you deserve to suffer. So I think it's absolutely worthwhile um, calling into question that, 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 I, that core intuition that justice demands this. Um, but I engage with it partly because it's, it's, present in many transitional contexts. And what I want to argue, or what I do argue, is that um, that intuition is the wrong intuition to invoke because the question of what constitutes the just treatment of perpetrators of wrongdoing as retributivists understand that question and why it, it's a question that needs answering um, isn't assumes the circumstances of stable democracies and um, the retributive answer only becomes compelling against those circumstances. But I nevertheless, as you rightly say, want to hold on to some notion of accountability for wrongdoers, for perpetrators of wrongdoing. Um, and the reason why I want to do so is it's part of what I, the the criteria for what I call the just pursuit of transformation. So I take transitional justice to be about trying to transform relationships among citizens and between citizens and officials that are fundamentally unequal into relations that are more defensible and more equal. But this is done through these processes that are dealing with past wrongs. And I, I take um, another requirement of justice to be to be treating fittingly and appropriately the perpetrators and victims who are subject to these processes. So I think um, I want to hold on to respecting the agency of perpetrators because um, one of the moves that can be made when looking at contexts in which genocide has taken place or there have been hundreds of thousands of people who've been killed or tens of thousands of people who've been tortured, is to lose sight of the fact that all of these wrongs were inflicted by particular human beings 
or groups of human beings um, that made particular choices um, in these contexts. You know, that torture doesn't happen by a machine. It happens by the infliction of suffering by another human being. Um, and so um, in order to respect that fact and to recognize it, um, I think fitting appropriate an appropriate treatment of perpetrators requires recognizing that you're dealing with agents. And, you know, acknowledging agency appropriately requires taking into account that genocide is not the action of one, it's the action of many. So you've got to hold individuals to account for their part and not hold them wholly responsible for what others are also implicated in. Take into account that, that you're dealing with political wrongdoing, not petty theft or ordinary greed. But that's part of the reason to, to sort of um, not lose sight of the fact that genocide doesn't just happen. Um, you're, that, that it happens as a result of the actions of, of ordinary human beings. Okay, I've got a few thoughts here, so this is one of yeah. these. Um, firstly, it seems like you could incorporate agency mm -hmm. um, into the theory without mm -hmm. having to necessarily commit to anything that might be ultimately metaphysically untenable about like people being the ultimate causes of their action or anything right. like that. We won't get into that debate. Right. Um, but you could just incorporate agency by, by saying it matters how voluntary actions were. And if people mm -hmm. chose to go out and torture people, that does say something about that person. And... But even then, it's complicated because, like I said earlier, in a repressive regime, you might be yeah. torturing people because you right. know that if you refuse that order, your family right. will be killed. Yeah. And you, you would presumably want to take into account the, the voluntariness on both sides of that spectrum there, which is why there seems to be usually some sort of distinction made between like the leaders and the followers. No, that's in right. These that's cases. right. Um, that's right. One perhaps slight counterexample is you could also just say even from just a morally consequentialist point of view, which I'm broadly sympathetic to, mm -hmm. that you would still want to take into account past wrongdoing because that is going to build a more stable peace. If you get the best consequences by having some sort of retribution, then the best consequences are the best consequences. That's the best action. But you could also imagine a counterexample and I'm thinking here of Northern Ireland and the Good Friday Agreement, where actually you get the best consequences through just blanket forgiveness and amnesty in a way that's profoundly morally counterintuitive. So I've spent some time in Northern Ireland, and I'm not an expert on this, but just briefly, the Good Friday Agreement made the move that any IRA terrorist, including people who did stuff like throw grenades into crowds of civilians, is a prisoner of war and is therefore eligible for release right. upon the end of that war. Right. And, you know, Americans who are intuitively sympathetic to the, to the Irish cause, you tell them this and they're like, wait, what? So you have people who killed 17 people, civilians, who are just walking around free right now? And it's like, yeah. And it, it's very counterintuitive, but if we're going to be moral consequentialists, which we might not want to be, but just say, it worked. There's a more or less a stable peace been built off the back of that. So... I guess my question would be, if it's the case that um, incorporating agency and incorporating retribution builds the best consequences, that seems a straight line. But what about in cases where there's some reason to think that actually just ignoring it and saying, screw it, we're just letting everyone go, might actually get you the best result? How would you think about those circumstances? Good, 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 good. 
So if I didn't have the inclusion of the criterion of um, the just pursuit of societal transformation, then my view would be entirely open to the scenarios you just laid out, where um, all you're interested in is a fundamentally consequentialist analysis of whether dealing with wrongdoing or dealing with wrongdoing in what manner, via amnesty, via punishment, via truth commission, what um, process or set of processes will best facilitate societal transformation, either by um, mitigating the consequences of the resumption of conflict or um, creating opportunities for participation for those who were previously excluded when you're thinking about members of groups like the FARC or the IRA who want to become politically evolved, evolved in a more normal way, normalized way. Um, so if I didn't have the just pursuit, then, then the question would entirely be one of what ways of dealing with the past facilitate or are conducive to transforming relationships among citizens. Um, but I think there's a serious risk of injustice if that's the only thing that matters or that's the only um, criterion for moral success that's looked at, which is why I want to take into account um, the fitting and appropriate treatment of perpetrators and victims, because then you risk treating perpetrators and victims as mere means, as mere tools for the facilitation of societal conflict in ways that don't respect and recognize and acknowledge in the case of victims that they were wronged, that they are rights bearers um, for, who should not have been subjected to the treatment that they were subjected to or suffer the losses that they suffered and not see any ind independent reason for engaging in trying to repair the harm or the loss that they experienced. Um, and also for perpetrators, again, for um, uh, refusing to treat them as agents who are capable of deciding for themselves what courses of action they were engaged in and appropriately be held accountable for, responsible for those choices. You're right that the question of holding accountable perpetrators is enormously complicated, not only because you're dealing with many situations that you had indicated of what looks like duress, right, um, where the consequences of refusing to go along with injustice or the infliction of human rights violations can have serious consequences for oneself and, and one's family. You're also dealing with cases in which the perpetrators of wrongdoing are often, in a sense, redundant, because if one refuses to participate, another individual will step in and fill the void, so to speak. Um, so it's not that the wrongdoing won't take place. It will just not take place with this particular person committing the torture or executing um, the political opponent. And the last reason it's complicated, which transitional justice literature is trying to think about how to deal with more systematically, is because often the identities of perpetrator and victim are overlapping in contexts of transitions. So you're dealing with individuals who have been victims and also go on to become perpetrators. Um, so child soldiers who were abducted, right, at gunpoint, um, and forced to commit horrific acts that alienated them from their family, right, or made it such that they could no longer go home, 
who then go on and who are children to commit um, uh, serious violations of human rights. Um, and, and so I think, you know, it's complicated to flesh out what it means to treat appropriately perpetrators of wrongdoing, recognizing where in the chain of command they were, um, recognizing and taking into into account that they might have been victims as well as perpetrators. Um, but I think those, I gave, I give some criterion in my book for how to, for parameters for appropriate and fitting treatment. But I think that question needs to be dealt with on its own terms for the justice of, uh, for transitional justice to be achieved and not just the instrumental question of whether relations within society are better overall. So there's all this empirical messiness, right? Yes. And just a general sort of moral messiness. But yes. your account, which I think is quite common for a lot of political philosophers, if you mm-hmm. if you wanted to summarize its sort of ultimate meta-ethical underpinnings, is it sort of a hybrid? You're acknowledging consequences and the consequences matter, but you also want to preserve some role for this um, Kantian distinction between means and ends and recognizing people as people. And in cases, either real or hypothetical, where those two goals might contradict, you would... I'm sort of putting words in yourself. You would say mm-hmm. that's sort of messy and you want to work through that situation by situation and think about it carefully. Yeah, I acknowledge. So so I think in terms, I, I don't, I frame my account more as a functionalist account. The function uh, in terms of the overarching objection, the function or the, 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 the goal is to achieve the societal transformation, though it you might reject the functionalist label and, and think of it in consequentially. So I, I take up in the last chapter um, this question of how to think about the relationship between these two sets of demands, the demands for transformation and then these more, as you were framing it, deontologically oriented requirements for treating victims and perpetrators, not as mere means. I think as a matter of fact, there's often much compatibility with um, the pursuit of one and the pursuit of the other. So that, for example, if you treat perpetrators or victims as mere means in ways that fail to acknowledge their dignity, you're often just duplicating patterns of interaction from contexts of repression and conflict. And so the expressive function of trials that operate in that way or truth commissions will actually undercut prospects for transformation because you're not actually demonstrating in the substance of the process um, that things will be any in any way different from what happened in terms of how wrongs were dealt with by the previous regime or during the period of conflict. But that's not to say that there will never be conflicts. And so I do think um, that there, it's rarely going to be a question of all or nothing that you sacrifice, um, um, treating victims and perpetrators appropriately in order to achieve transformation. It's often going to be matters of degrees. So the degree to which you could fittingly and appropriately respond to victims may be in tension with the extent of the societal transformation that you could facilitate. And there I am, as you suggested, 
Um, I think the best answer is to say that it, it's going to require um, an analysis of the particular case to make the case for what kind of balancing or compromise is most justified in that particular moment. Okay. I've got a thought on that, but then we should move on to the, to the yeah. end of the argument. Yeah. Yeah, my thought is um, I've spent a bit of time on the sort of meta-ethical, consequentialist, virtue ethics, yeah. deontology yeah. thing. Yeah. And I think my takeaway, I'm more sympathetic to the consequentialist view, but I think, like you say, it's more often than you think you're not in com- a completely different moral universe, because oftentimes you know, all of these cases about sacrificing one to save the many actually don't really come up like that in real life. More commonly, you're looking at a set of rules or guiding principles that will ultimately produce good consequences. And they often end up looking a heck of a lot like deontology. And I think both sides accuse the other of bad faith there in that deontologists look at consequentialists and say, but you're just cheating. You're just right. jigging. You're just right. jigging the formulas to get right. back to wherever right. you find intuitive. Right. But then consequentialists look at it and go, "Well, we find it very suspicious that your deontological rules tend to maximise well-being That's anyway. Right. <laughs> and when they don't, don't, like say a prohibition on homosexuality, then they, they, they tend to be quite suspicious. That's so, right. So anyway, that's a little bit yeah. of an aside. Yeah. Um, Let's move forward to your sort of concept. Oh, we we still have corrective and distributive Mm -hmm. justice. Are there any quick Mm -hmm. notes you'd want to make on those before we move on? I guess, uh, so one thing I can say about distributive justice is that um, part of what I show um, in my discussion of distributive justice is that the debates among political philosophers are essentially beside the point for the the issues of distribution that are salient in transitions, because um, whatever theory of of distributive justice you adopt, in societies in which there are pervasive structural inequality, those principles of justice have failed to be satisfied. But the basic point I want to say is the the, the what philosophers are, worried about in terms of balancing respect for freedom and equality just aren't the salient questions when it comes to distributive concerns as they play out in transitional contexts. Great. That's a good I way can, of saying it. Yeah. I can yeah. maybe trim that slightly. Yeah, you edit. can trim that. Feel free to trim slash delete because that was not coming out the way I wanted. Yeah, maybe maybe the final final bit. Okay, so to summarize the ground we've covered thus far, yeah. justice has a number of different um conceptions, but as a concept, we might say the ultimate moral or normative guiding rules for society. Those rules are going to be one thing in a stable democracy where you have broad equality and you don't have normalized collective wrongdoing. They're going to be another very difficult, very complicated thing in an authoritarian, repressive regime. And then they're going to be another thing again when you've got that authoritarian, repressive regime transitioning or at least attempting to transition into something Mm -hmm. else Mm -hmm. and you've argued that the normal conceptions we have of retributive corrective and distributive are not super applicable in that transitional zone that's right yeah and in its place you talk about transitional justice as i'm quoting you here how to justly pursue social transformation um, and you use the analogy of just war theory. You've got the mm-hmm. Yusal Bellum and the Yusin Bello. 
Um, do you want to talk us through, if we're not looking at rules as two principles, Justice, what exactly are we looking at? Good, 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 good. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So, um, so I flesh out um, what I mean by um, the just pursuit of societal transformation, drawing, as you said, on a, a, a structural analogy with how we think about the morality of war. So I take it that the overarching purpose of um, responding to legacies of wrongdoing in periods of transition away from conflict and repression is to transform the ways in which citizens interact with one another and the government interacts with citizens. Um, I take it that that was the overarching purpose of um you know, attempts, first the Nuremberg trials and then attempts to denazify Germany post-World War II. Um, the ultimate overarching purpose of, of um, the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, to set relationships on a new path. And I flesh out what that new path is um, by drawing on uh, previous work that I had done on political reconciliation, but that fills out the details of transformation by looking at what are the characteristic problems in how citizens interact and citizens and officials interact in contexts of repression and conflict where relations are pervasively unequal. So characteristic problems include um, an erosion or absence of the rule of law. And there I follow Lon Fuller in um, thinking about the rule of law in terms of a set of principles that a legal system ought to systematically respect and practice. So you ought to have um, rules that are non-retroactive so that you're not, after the fact, legalizing actions that were illegal at the time of action on the part of security officials on behalf of acting on behalf of, of orders of um, uh, government officials or representatives of the state. You've got, um, importantly, congruence, going back to what we were talking about earlier, between what declared rules say on paper and how they're actually enforced in practice so that you don't have torture as being illegal, but that's systematically um, being meted out to political opponents in fact. So that's one part, kind of having legal rules have purchase on um, shaping the behavior of government officials and citizens and um, the, the other set of criteria that Fuller lay out, lays out, as well as establishing conditions for a minimum level of trust among citizens and between citizens and officials to be reasonable. So pervasive and profoundly deep distrust is characteristic of um, societies in transition, where the, the, the there can be a lot of differences in the dis distrust you find, who it's directed at, whether it's along ethnic cleavages or national cleavages or racial cleavages, whether it's with respect to citizens or um, citizens with respect to officials. But um, I think establishing conditions where it becomes reasonable to take as a default minimum to view fellow citizens and officials um, minimally competent 
to fulfill their role-related responsibilities and lacking ill will with respect to oneself, not out to harm oneself or one's ethnic group or religious group or, or or ideological group becomes critical. And finally, establishing, drawing on the idea of capabilities of of Amartya Sen and Martha Nussbaum, um, threshold levels of genuine opportunities to be respected, to be recognized as a member of one's political community in cases where that's what genocide or ethnic cleansing was trying to de facto deny, participate in institutions, and avoid poverty. So I take it this is what relational transformation has to undertake. Um, And there's a lot more to say about the conditions that need to be in place for that to be possible. So one thing that matters often is overcoming denial because um, during conflict and repression, it's not that everyone is harmed. There are always or typically groups that benefit. And so overcoming denial about who was responsible for wrongdoing, about what the consequences of wrongdoing were and how widespread it was in the, in the face of official denial that anything bad was happening um, can be a condition for these other aspects of transformation to become possible. So that's that's what I take to be drawing on the use, the just war analogy, to be the use ad bellum, the, the overarching purpose for the sake of which these transitional justice measures are taken, um, truth commissions and reparation schemes and apologies. They're taken to try to establish or contribute to transformation so that nunca mas, the the refrain that you often hear, so that never again becomes a reality, so that we never repeat the history that we're just emerging from. But I take the the just pursuit of this, again, echoing what we were talking about a moment ago, to be requiring pursuing that in a way that respects the dignity yeah that bit just to clarify for the audience um just war at least in the classical st Mm -hmm. augustine and all that tends to have two components a just Mm -hmm. cause and just conduct that's right you've got to be doing it for a just reason and then there's certain minimum standards of behavior that you've got to meet during a war and you view that as analogous to societal transformation if you're proposing to fundamentally restructure a society you've got to be doing it for a just reason which you've just outlined that's right that's that is the just reason to underdo it that 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 is the 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 justice of the cause so to speak is the the cause um that that these processes are 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 pursuing as a matter of justice is this transforming relations Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. As mentioned, next week will be the second part of this conversation, where we move to look at some real-world cases and talk through the morality, or lack thereof, of the Iraq War, of the transition from apartheid in South Africa, and we tentatively make the case for reparations, or at least considering reparations, in America. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can like, subscribe, follow us in a whole bunch of different ways. We have a Facebook and Twitter page. If you want the most engaged following, follow me on Twitter. I've been sort of blogging about, or tweeting, or whatever we call it, um, about Kavanaugh and some of the ethical issues surrounding that recently. So if you want to get my sort of minute-to-minute thoughts, uh, follow me on Twitter. You can also follow us on Facebook. 
Um, you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, RSS, um, YouTube even. So check out our website. It's politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. The links to all of that are up there. And once again, if you want to support the show, if you think it's valuable that we're doing these episodes, please do forward them to your friends, share them on your own social media, and if you're able to, chip in whatever feels right to you on Patreon. Links to all of that are on the website as well. So thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week for the second part of my conversation with Colleen Murphy. Until then, 